Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Daniel Schaefer, our investment banking correspondent, and down the line from Westminster, George Parker, our political editor. This week, we'll take a look at the Parliamentary Commission on Banking Standards, which wants to toughen ongoing banking legislation. We'll report on news of Barclays and RBS and their latest pay shenanigans. And finally, we'll discuss the latest banking stress tests in the US, which saw Goldman Sachs identified as one of the weaker Wall Street institutions. First, though, to the Banking Commission news. Monday sees the second reading of new banking legislation in the House of Commons here in the UK. And coincident with that, a new report from the Parliamentary Banking Commission on Standards, which has described some of the legislation as extremely weak. Well, joining me to talk about that is George Parker, our political editor. George, thank you for joining us. So we've got really a fairly difficult situation emerging. We've got the second reading of new banking legislation happening on Monday. But the language used really in the Banking Commission's report seems to suggest there's going to be a battle for uh, George Osborne to get this legislation through. Yes, certainly to get the legislation through as he intended it to. I think we'll easily see a, a government majority when he gets his second reading in the House of Commons on Monday. But then the big problem comes as the bill moves through the Commons and then later on, especially into the House of Lords, where the Chancellor faces some fairly formidable opponents in the shape of people like Nigel Lawson, Lord Lawson, the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, and of course Justin Welby, the uh, new Archbishop of Canterbury, both of whom sit on the Commission and both of whom are saying that the bill as it's currently constructed just doesn't go far enough in putting a, a tight straitjacket around the, the banks and what they can do. So, George, what is this commission all about? It seems to be a very powerful one. Well, indeed, it's got a very powerful lineup. It's got you know, people like Nigel Lawson, the former Chancellor, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, and, of course, that's chaired by Andrew Tyree, a very respected chairman of the Commons Treasury Committee. And when it was set up last year, it was in the wake of the LIBOR scandal. I think the Chancellor, George Osborne, thought this was just a way of, of putting the whole LIBOR issue to bed. And I think he thought it was going to be a fairly soft, fuzzy commission that would come up with a few ideas for improving culture and ethics in the banking industry, some stuff about disqualifying people who misbehave and all the rest of it. Instead of which, the commission has become a sort of force unto itself and has tried to get back into the whole question of the, vicar, the area covered by the Vickers report into the way the banking industry is structured. And indeed, it's the subject of the banking reform bill that's getting its second reading in the Commons on Monday. So George Osborne's become rather frustrated by that. I think he thought that issue would be more or less settled thanks to Vickers and the numerous consultations that went around the Vickers report, instead of which he's facing quite a serious revolt led by this commission, both in the Commons and in the House of Lords. So in substance, what are the key issues that they're most concerned about, that the Tyree Commission is most concerned about? Well, there are two main areas that will grab all of the headlines. The first is around the question of the ring fence that the Vickers report suggested putting around retail banking, which the the Chancellor has accepted. What the Commission is worried about is that you can't trust the banks not to try to interfere with the ring fence. And they've suggested that if a bank, a single bank, tries to muck around with this new regulatory framework, then the Chancellor should have a reserve power to break up the entire banking sector. 
This is the so-called electrification of the ring fence, which, exactly. which Tyree proposed and which Osborne accepted when that came out a few months ago. He accepted a bit of it, didn't he? Um, George Osborne accepted the idea that if a bank tries to manipulate the ring fence, then that individual bank might be broken up by the Chancellor. What the Tyree Commission is saying is that if a single bank tries to muck around with it, that has implications for the whole sector and the entire sector should be broken up. That goes a lot further than George Osborne wants to go. And the um, second point? And the second point, uh, and the subject of draft amendments put down by the Tyree Commission, is around the question of leverage ratios. The, um, the government's proposal is that you should have a 3% ratio. This is the ratio of assets to equity, uh, which is the kind of key measure of how big a bank can be relative to its supporting capital. Exactly. And the banking and the banking commission led by Andrew Tyree wants that to be set at 4%. So that's above the international norm that's going to be set out under Basel III. It will make British banks arguably the safest in the world. But the other side of that, of course, is it raises the cost of the banks. It's expensive for the banks to hold capital. And those extra costs inevitably would be passed on to customers and to businesses. So and it's a, arguably a cap as being a cap on size. It's a cap on lending potentially at a politically sensitive time, given all the noise around the lack of lending, into the, particularly into the well, small exactly. business community. And that's a big focus of the budget on March the 20th. And so it's a very, it's a very controversial thing. I mean, we spend a lot of time talking about the extra burdens being imposed on the City of London by Brussels. But this is... This is an additional burden being proposed for the City of London from a committee set up by George Osborne and chaired by a right-wing conservative, Andrew Tyree. So it's a, it's a very confrontational stance they're taking here. It'll be interesting to see how Osborne uh, gets out of this corner. Thank you, George, for joining us. On to our second topic of the day, also in the UK, but nonetheless interesting. Daniel, you've been looking at the latest annual report data from Barclays and RBS, particularly on the issue of pay. One of the most interesting data points that came out of that is that Bob Diamond, the former chief executive of Barclays, actually took home more money last year than the current chief executive, Anthony Jenkins, even though Bob Diamond left at the midpoint of the year, says something about his level of pay and the the special treatment he got, I suppose. What did you think of that and other uh, revelations? I would say Anthony Jenkins uh, and Sir David Walker, the new chairman of Barclays, both came in with a view to change the culture at Barclays and to pay particularly the pay culture. And I think what we've seen with the annual report now is actually the most stringent signs of that actually there is some change happening. And the most, you know, the best symbol for that is Anthony Jenkins' pay for last year was 1.13 million in base salary, pension and other benefits, plus around 2.2 million pounds he got from previous years bonuses or share awards that which had been deferred last, yeah, right. and paid out last year. And he so didn't that, get an annual bonus for 2012 because yeah, he waived it, right? He waived that, yeah. yeah. So, you know, that makes a total of 3.4 million and that compares with Bob Diamond his predecessor's pay in 2011 there was almost 25 million. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it is a far it's really a far cry from the pay levels that his predecessor got. And just in terms of the basic data that I kind of mentioned in the introduction there, yeah. I think I'm right in saying that Mr. Diamond, who got salary for 2012 of getting on for 2 million, yeah. including this 600,000 
tax equalization payment, yeah. which, as regular listeners will remember, I'm sure, was one of the big sticking points the previous year because he'd got this massive, by comparison, it was nearly yeah. six million, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, he got five point seven five million just as a tax, tax equalization. equalization. Yeah, and yeah. that obviously was one of the things that stirred investors' anger. Yes, because uh, it was only disclosed in a footnote, as I remember. Yeah, yeah, it was um, actually. <laughs> and and actually, part of Mr. Diamond's share awards that he got were also disclosed in a footnote in 2011. So it was really a very opaque matter. And there was a lot of discussion about his overall pay levels anyway and how much, you know, there were wildly, the figures widely ranging from 6.3 million, which was the official Barclays version, and up to 25 million, which in our view seems the more realistic picture about his pay. And that has something that has actually changed with this year's annual report as well, where it has become more transparent in terms of what Anthony Jenkins has got in terms of new share awards for the future, like long-term incentive awards. They've been made much more transparent than they have been in the past. Interesting. That does seem to be a trend that's catching on. I mean, looking at another UK bank, HSBC, which a week ago reported its results and simultaneously published its annual report, there is, most investors would say, an exemplary level of disclosure and transparency in terms of certainly how the Stuart Gulliver, the chief executive, got paid in terms of his target hitting and so on. Just coming back to Barclays and the broader picture of pay there, as you said, Anthony Jenkins is supposedly ushered in, along with David Walker, the chairman, a new culture around remuneration as well as other things. What other evidence was there of that actually happening lower down the organization. Yeah, I think we've seen some good evidence for that happening. One thing is they disclosed the number of staff who earn more than one million pounds, 428 actually. That has obviously caused another public outcry again that several hundred people at Barclays earn more than one million pound. But actually the number has come down quite a lot. And also the number of people earning more than five million has come down from 17 to five in the past year. We should just say this is not necessarily anything to do with underlying performance of the bank because on a year-on-year basis, the underlying profitability of the investment bank, which is where most of these people work, was fairly... Strong. That's the most striking thing about it is that actually investment bank performance, as you're saying, on an underlying basis, not on a reported basis mm. where it has come down on a group level, but on an underlying basis, i.e. the operative level, it has actually improved last year, but still there were cuts to the bonus pool. In the investment bank at Barclays alone, the pay was bonus payments were cut by 20%. Right. And there's another really striking figure, which is that 45%, so almost half of staff in the investment bank didn't receive any bonus at all last wow. year, which is something that is very unusual. Is there uh, a comparative figure for that? Do we know what previous years? Uh, no, they didn't disclose that. So we no. don't know that. But and it does o- sound extraordinarily high. Yeah, it does. And obviously, at times when all banks, including Barclays and uh, RBS, are cutting jobs, it is also used as a way to tell staff, we might not no longer yes. need you and you, you could leave. Obviously, they don't want to cut 45% of the staff in the investment bank, but no. it's, it's but it's part an incentive of the to perform, isn't it? Yeah. Maybe a, a slightly different one from in previous years where the incentive was to get as high a bonus as you can. Now it's to hold on to your job. Yeah. We mentioned RBS in the introduction there. Any interesting data that you saw in in the RBS disclosures? One thing is that for a taxpayer-owned bank, RBS still had quite a lot of people earning more than £1 million as well. Yeah, getting on for 100. Yeah, it's almost 100. And so given all the controversy around Stephen Hester's bonus payments in the past, Mm. that was an interesting figure because in the public domain, this has 
sparked some controversy again as well. Yes. And then we already knew that Stephen Hester has given up his bonus for last year because of the IT problems, mm. the disaster, one could say, the RBS faced last, last year. Yeah. What also emerged with the annual report on RBS was that while he waived his bonus, he did take previous year's share awards that were awarded to him, uh, awarded to him for previous years. Yeah, uh, for 2010, I uh, yeah, think. Yeah, 2010. So yeah. he got a £700,000 payment. Payout from that. that. Let's move on to our final topic for the day, crossing the Atlantic to the US, where we've seen the annual stress test exercise of the big banks conducted by the Fed. This was, again, as regular listeners will remember, a really big story a year ago, basically Citigroup, which failed the test because they were overambitious with what they wanted to pay out to their shareholders in dividends and share buybacks. It was basically sowed the seeds for, arguably, for Vikram Pandit's departure as chief executive. That all seems a very long time ago now. And I think Citigroup, I'm right in saying, has performed better this year. The surprise bad performer is Goldman Sachs. Yes, it is. Quite surprisingly, Goldman Sachs has been identified as one of the weaker financial groups on Wall Street. How is this all measured, by the way? Basically, what they are stress testing is a scenario of a deep global recession and a shock to markets. So that includes things like assumed 12.1% unemployment rate in the US and stock market crash of more than 50%. And we should say the difference to the European exercises like this that we've seen is that actually the US is one step ahead or a few years ahead of Europe in the sense that we're talking in Europe still about banks potentially failing and having to be recapitalized. Yeah. In the US, we're talking about banks getting close to failing, but the penalty is that they don't get to pay out the dividends yeah. or share I mean, buybacks that they really, want. Really, for them in the US, it has turned into an exercise of how much money can we give back, yes, and not into exactly. an exercise of will we how weather we a storm raise. or not. Yes. So it's really something where investors are looking at in terms of you know how much can they pay out. Yeah, and and therefore and a actually, driver of share prices. Yeah, indeed. I would imagine. Indeed, yeah. yeah. So, and this time, 17 of the 18 banks have actually passed the test. So only Goldman didn't? No, Goldman did, actually. Goldman Goldman passed it. They had a 5.8% ratio. Compared to a 5% Compared to 5% minimum, yeah. Yeah. Quartier one capital ratio. The bank that didn't make it was Ally Financial, which is basically the former lending arm of General Motors. It's still mostly taxpayer-owned. And it actually failed the test big time with, I think, 1.1%. So, yeah, it obviously one of the by far the weakest performer. So this isn't the last part of this story as far as I understand it there is a kind of follow-up exercise whereby all the banks confirm what they want to pay out in dividends this week we will see another reporting by the Federal Reserve which will then include the payout plans so we will see what the payout plans are and what they would do to the capital ratio. So if I take, for instance, Goldman Sachs with a 5.8 ratio, the payout plans they will have will then be sort of subtracted from the capital ratio and then we'll see where they'll end up including the payout ratio. So that prompts everyone to think that Goldman will not come out with a bumper payout plan for this year because otherwise there would be a risk at failing. Okay. Whereas Citigroup, for instance, was surprisingly this year one of the stronger performers in the test. They had an 8.3% ratio. And they rushed last week to, even before this week's Federal Reserve announcement, they came out with a plan to distribute $1.2 billion through a share buyback to its investors. Just a quick word on Morgan Stanley, because looking at the list here, I noticed that compared to the 5.8% number that you mentioned for Goldman, 
Morgan Stanley number is 5.7. Yes, Morgan Stanley has, alongside Goldman, been one of the weakest performers there. But they have already said they are not planning a big increase uh, or any increase in the dividend or the share buyback. Right. So one can basically assume in their case that the 5.7% rate is going to remain fairly stable in this week's reporting. The they've said they've, they're going to concentrate on the acquisition of Smith Barney, the brokerage um, uh, business they're taking over from Citigroup, so, Holy which kind obviously of, is, is yeah. quite costly to them and, and right. eats into the capital base if they... So okay. they'll have to look not to pay out too much. Okay. So well, we'll we'll catch up on the final results of those and report on any surprises in the final numbers next week, I guess. That's all in the meantime for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Daniel and George for their contributions and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Connor Sullivan. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.